All right, so this morning we get the treat of hearing Peter teach us. He's a gifted teacher and leader. He's our pastoral resident of this church. Um, I just wanted to let all you guys know that um, Peter's been working hard this past month. He passed his canonical exams, the exams that... Um, yeah. Um, the exams that uh, for being a priest, and he got approved to be ordained. Um, he got approved uh, just this past Friday. So um, look, look out for his ordination soon. But we're delighted to welcome Peter to our podcast. Thank you, thank you. Um, you know, I didn't really include an embarrassing story of me this time in my sermon, but one just managed to uh, find its way into the service. Um, you know, turtles need to walk sometimes. Um, well, we're going to be looking uh, at the miracle at the wedding of Canaan, the sign. Um, go ahead and turn in your pew Bibles to page 887 this morning. 887, this is John 2. Sometimes I, I wonder, you know, Judas ran money for Jesus, but who ran public relations? For Jesus. Like, which disciple was in charge of that? So, Jesus' first miracle out of the gate is making 150-ish gallons of wine. Like, no wonder they called him a glutton and a drunkard, right? Why on earth would Jesus' first miracle seem like a secret David Blaine party trick that happens, like, behind closed doors? And if we look at this passage in verse 11, we see this isn't actually just a miracle. This is a sign. John calls this a sign. Um, Signs are not just miracles. Signs validate the authority and the identity of the one who performs them. So this water into wine miracle is a divine validation of Jesus' power and identity. And I understand, at first glance, this seems like some impromptu hocus-pocus. But this passage points to Christ as provider and his eternal relationship with his bride, the church. Brothers and sisters, let's look closer at the wedding of Cana. And when we look, we'll see the need for provision, the sign of the wine, and the the need for provision, the sign of the wine, and the future wedding. And as we look at this passage, I realize that there's a lot of symbolism in here. There's so many biblical themes. And if you are new to Christianity or you don't consider yourself a Christian, just hop in and uh, try to pick up as much as you can. Um, There's so much imagery. Looking at Jesus is like looking through a prism. You shine your light in one area, and then all of a sudden you see all these different facets. And we're going to catch a lot of facets today. So just buckle up no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, okay? So the need for provision. Jesus is meeting a need in this passage. The wine is gone. Wine was essential in the Jewish mind for a wedding. If the wine runs out, the party is over. You can't have a party without wine. Amen. Uh, What causes the shortage or the need of wine? Why is there a lack of wine here? Sarah looked at the obedience of the service, but I want to look at the role of mother, uh, of the mother in this passage, Mary in this passage. 
why is there this wine shortage? And we'll see how Mary plays in with this. I've heard some stories or some sermons and some commentaries, and they know that there's shame on the bride and the groom. Maybe the bride and the groom didn't prepare properly, or maybe they didn't have means, they were poor, and so they just didn't have enough money to pay for all the wine that was needed. But Jesus comes in and he saves from the embarrassment by working behind the scenes and makes an abundance of wine. But in preparation for this sermon, I came across a commentary by someone named Rod Whitaker, a scholar named Rod Whitaker, and it gives a different interpretation to this story. Whitaker suggests that weddings were BYOW, bring your own wine, right? Or at least some guests were expected to, or all guests were expected to bring a little bit of wine. There was a partial responsibility on the guests to bring some wine. If that's the case, when Jesus' mother approaches him and says, they have no wine, it's not so much a, I know you're a holy Messiah and that you're capable of everything. And it's more of a, Jesus, I've raised you better than this. You're showing up here, bringing no wedding gift of wine, and you're going to roll up with your 12 bros and just not provide any wine for this party. That's a little bit different tone than what I'd heard. But I, I think that's what's actually going on here. Jesus is being reminded by his mother of an expectation, a social norm. And even though Jesus is sinless, he still has the ability to exasperate his mother. Um, we know this because when he was 12 years old, uh, he was in Jerusalem with a whole group of people from Nazareth, and the, they left Jerusalem in a caravan, and Jesus was supposed to be in the group. And his mom and tr dad traveled a whole day, and they realized Jesus is not with the caravan. And it took two more days, so three days of not knowing where Jesus is. They find Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem, and they say to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus says, why were you searching for me? He asked, didn't you know I would be in my father's house? We don't hear Mary's response. But my guess, if she didn't verbalize it, she, there was something like, why am I searching for you? Because you're my son. <laughs> and there are lions and Romans and snakes, and I didn't know where you were, right? <laughs> so even though that Jesus was sinless, he still, at the age of 12, had the ability to exasperate his mom. And I think his mom is a little bit exasperated here. And I think that as Jesus approaches, uh, Mary approaches Jesus in this passage, it's not just with expectancy, it's with a little bit of exasperation. Ahem. Jesus, they are out of wine. And we see that Jesus doesn't miss an opportunity for yet another cryptic response. Jesus says in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. If We have the ESV translation, but if you look in the NIV translation, it says, Dear woman, but most scholars agree that that's a bad translation, and the translators are just trying to soften it a bit. It's just woman. <laughs> woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In likelihood, this is not said in a docile tone, but this next line is definitely not docile. What does this have to do with me? It's literally translated, what is there to me and you? It's a, a term of distance, right? Um, 
It's an idiom. It came to express detachment between two people. Jesus can be spicy at times, a little spicy. We know he's not breaking God's law to honor your father and mother, but Jesus is also a lion, not just a lamb, right? And here we see Jesus acting like a lion. We're going to look at what Jesus means by the hour that comes, but I want you to notice how Mary responds in verse 5. Mary says, do, uh, Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. While there may have been some exasperation left in her voice, I believe that here's the pivot, and Mary starts to display faith. Mary could have responded with, uh, first of all, it's mother, not woman. <laughs> This has everything to do with you and disciples because you're drinking the party dry. And if your hour hasn't come yet, then go home, right? <laughs> but Mary says, do whatever he tells you. There was a real need. And even in this moment, Jesus may have seemed a little bit distant and hard to understand to his mother Mary. Mary gets the servants ready for Christ provide. Mary gets the servants ready for Christ to provide. You see Mary's statement, do whatever he tells you. It's a call to obedience, but it's also an implicit statement of trust in Jesus' ability to provide. Mary calls the servants to trust in Jesus' provision. Incarnation, will you call others to trust in Jesus' provision? And I want to talk to parents specifically this morning. We can all pick up from this, but I want to speak to parents specifically. Parents, will you call your children to trust in Jesus' provision? I remember in college, I was hit with an unexpected housing bill that wasn't covered by my scholarship. Bright Futures didn't cover it. And I remember calling my dad and saying, I don't know what we're going to do. And I remember dad saying to me, I honestly don't know how we're going to afford this. But God is going to provide for us. And literally the next day, my uncle called me completely out of the blue, not aware of anything that was happening. And he said that because I'd turned 21, I had some delayed inheritance money from my grandfather who had passed away. And he told me the amount, and it was the exact amount of my housing bill, right? Often our instincts as parents is to hide or to shield our children from needs that arise in our family. And sometimes that's appropriate. It's good for kids to just develop a working trust in their parents' provision. But Jesus also calls us to trust in our Heavenly Father's provision. And sometimes the Spirit will lead you, parents, to bring your whole family into the vulnerable place of dependency so that your children can marvel at the faithfulness of God. I can tell you about God providing my housing bill in college. I can also tell you about the Lord covering family dental bills that we didn't know how we were going to pay for. The myriad of times my mom depended on the Lord for courage at a speaking engagement when she had none. I can even tell you how fun family outings that all of a sudden turned to duds got turned around again because we called out to the Lord on a day off and he met us. 
And I came into adulthood with a catalog of God's provision stories because I had a mother and father who were not afraid to say, we have a need. We're going to take it to Jesus and do whatever he says. So we have seen how this need comes about and how the mother of Jesus calls others to act with trust and obedience. But how does this miraculous sign, this manifestation of God's glory, come from this social faux pas? Let's explore the sign of the wine in this passage. Mary alerts Jesus about the wine problem at Cana, but Jesus has much bigger wine problems on his mind. Jesus connects the shortage of wine at the wedding at Cana to the shortage of wine for a cosmic wedding feast. On Jesus' mind is the feast of feasts, the ultimate wedding banquet. We heard about that cosmic feast in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 25. On the mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich foods, a well-aged wine of rich foods and full marrow of well-aged well aged and well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord is spoken. There is a wedding feast that is coming that is going to take away death. But to get that wedding feast, you have to have the wine. You can't have the wedding banquet if you don't have the wine. And Jesus points to the wine that's going to be poured out on his hour. That's what's on his mind. So looking, from, looking at this passage, I think we see four wine signs here. What do we learn about this wine of Jesus? We have four wine signs. One, this is a purifying wine. Two, this is a wine that overshadows all other wines. Three, this is a priceless wine. And four, this is a wine of assurance. So wine sign one, this is a purifying wine. Jesus uses the purification jars to store this wine. Hello, the symbolism is striking here. In the Old Testament, Purification rites and laws were mainly about removing death. So we have all these laws in the Old Testament about being clean and unclean, and all those mostly are oriented with the death that you have on you. So you can't touch death, dead things on the side of the road. If you do, you're ceremonially unclean. You have to be apart from the camp for a while. You have to wash yourself with pure water, purifying water. And these, purifi these purification jars held water that was used to cleanse people from leprosy, infectious disease, um, anything that had to do with death. And here is Jesus making wedding feast wine from water that is meant to wash away death. Come on! When Jesus provides the true wine, the wine from his own body, why does, he, why does Jesus provide this wine to remove death forever? Here in this story, we see that Jesus' mission is to put an end to death, and he does that by providing wine. Jesus wants to heal the world 
with the sacrament of his wine, with the sacrament of his body and blood. So wine sign one, this wine is purifying wine. Wine sign two, this wine overshadows all other wines. Here's what I mean. The master of the feast says in verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The master has no idea how deeply symbolic the phrase he just said was. Before the time of Jesus, God had laws for the people of Israel that were meant to purify them from death and keep them in relationship with him. In the old book, uh, or in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, that's in the New Testament, verse 1, the author calls the Old Testament law, but a shadow of the good things to come. And a little later in chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews continues, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. And every priest that stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the God, at the right hand of God. The wine that Jesus offers here is an overshadow wine. The wine that was first served is overshadowed by the suffering. The master of the feast says, um, this is the good wine. Jesus is going to give us wine through his sacrifice of his own body that will take away all the sins of the world and defeat death forever. It overshadows all the previous wine. It overshadows everything. And this wine is not cheap. So wine sign number two, it overshadows, but wine sign number three, this wine is not cheap. This wine is priceless. You can't buy this wine. This wine can only come from Jesus. Do you notice that Jesus says, my hour? Jesus is going to continue to talk about his hour in the book of John. He mentioned it, it many times. That's the hour of his death on the cross. The wine of Jesus flows from the cross. It's priceless. You can't buy this wine. The wine that takes away death, that overshadows all other wines, can only be made by Christ. And he makes it at the cost of his life. Church, God gave up his life so that you could have this priceless wine. It's a holy mystery what happens here at this table. We don't take the body of Christ with flippancy or with reverence because this wine is priceless, paid for us by Jesus' own life. So this wine is costly. But this wine, wine sign four, is also an assurance. It's a guarantee that this wedding is going to happen, this eternal wedding. Jesus is saying, just as I provided purifying wine for this wedding at Cana, so I will provide purifying wine from my own body for the whole world. Jesus' hour has come for us Christians. We're on this side of the cross. Jesus has poured out his body for us. The wine is ready now. We can taste it now. Every Eucharist is a wedding feast pregame with the wine Jesus made laying down his life. 
It's a real foretaste of what's coming, and it points to the cosmic future wedding. So we've seen God's provision here. We've seen the wine signs. But I want to end by thinking about the question, how do we live in light of our future wedding with Christ? The Bible uses so many metaphors to describe our relationship with God. God reveals himself as our Father, right? And Jesus teaches us to pray to God as our Father. If you've been around the church for a while, maybe you've heard about the threefold office of Jesus as prophet, a messenger of God, as priest, a mediator between God and humanity, and as king. Jesus is the ruler of all creation. You know, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. We talk to God as our Father, but I don't think we often think about the fact that we are betrothed to God. This is a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament in the Bible. Hosea 2.16, God says, this is the Old Testament, and in this day, or in, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me husband. This is God saying, you will call me husband, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. A husband and wife relationship is of utmost commitment and of utmost intimacy. And instead of thinking yourself as a Christian, I just want you to try on the label Christ's fiancé for size. And just see what that does messing with your mind, right? When you're engaged, your time, your mental energy, your emotional energy, your finances, everything becomes oriented towards that day. I remember the months leading up to marrying Naomi. All I could think about was the wedding. There was no room for lukewarm feelings. From December to when we got married, to June, when, or December to where we got engaged, to June when we got married, we were completely devoted. Any free time that we had, we were either dreaming about getting married, picking out a wedding dress, picking the songs of the wedding, whatever it was. She was in India, I was in Tallahassee, and all our time was spent longing to be married together. Now look, earthly marriages fall short. They're just a shadow of a thing to come. But I would say that there's a very intuitive sense in every culture. It's like a global collective standard that when you're engaged to be married, everything in your life becomes oriented towards your marriage, right? That engagement is celebrated across cultures. And incarnation, that's the call for us. Everything in our lives is connected to the hope of that future wedding. The wedding imagery in the Bible jolts us out of our lukewarm, casual faith. You can't be a casual fiancé. Even when we fall short, we know the standard for an engaged bride and groom is to spend all the energy they can muster to prepare for the wedding. Now, I just want you to go and take stock of your whole life. And in what ways are you not living in light 
of the cosmic wedding that's to come when you and I are united as the church to Christ, the bridegroom. We need to reorient the way that we think about faith, and we need to think about faith. The Bible calls us to think about faith way more seriously. You can't Christmas and Easter your way into being a fiancé, right? Devotion calls for your whole life. Engagement calls for a devotion that comes from your whole life. But while you're taking stock of your lives and orienting yourself as a, the bride of Christ, the future bride of Christ, I want to call you to t- two practical applications. I want to call you to fast, and I want to call you to feast. In Matthew 9, the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and they say, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. So Jesus is saying, look, the bridegroom's right here. We just got engaged. And when I go away, then you can start fasting, and then we'll feast when we come back together again. Jesus is foreshadowing a time of fasting for the church. And when we fast, our hungry bodies remind us of the wedding feast that is coming. Fasting is a key practice of the church. I would commend to you a chapter on fasting from Richard Foster's celebration of this discipline, but fasting aligns us to the reality that our cosmic future is an eternal wedding with Jesus. But second, we also feast. We feast here in the Eucharist. We feast in different seasons of the church, in different seasons of the church, especially in the season of Easter. Christian, we Christians, we ought to be the most joyous partiers the world has ever seen. Our feasting and our celebration is serious business. Like all joyous wedding feasts, it takes some attentional planning. Sunday should be set apart because it's the day that we remember the cosmic wedding feast. And these seasons of joy in the church, seasons like Easter, are marked with real joy. I love partying with you, Incarnation, eating good food, listening to jazz on the lawn after Advent lessons and carols, all that stuff. Why do we do that? We have to party because we're pre-gaming for the wedding feast, right? Because of verse 11, we are disciples of Jesus and we believe. We believe that Jesus is the true bridegroom of the whole world and that from his body, he provides the wine for the wedding feast. Christ has manifested his glory at the wedding of Cana. Christ has manifested his glory on the cross. He's manifested his glory in his resurrection. And we believe, as it says at the end of this passage, church, that one day Christ will beat death forever and wipe away every tear. Our wedding is coming. Let's live in joyous expectation of the feast. Amen.